You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. In the first week of March, all eyes will be on Long Beach in California when it plays host to TPM24, the biggest logistics and trade show of the year. Now critical to the ports of LA and Long Beach and other US West Coast ports are the many drayage operators that link the whole import and export system by linking up the container terminals, inland depots, railheads and further afield. Uh, These guys have had a lot of headwinds lately though. To discuss this and much more, I'm delighted to welcome to this Freight Buyers Club News Insight episode, Matt Schwapp, CEO of the Harbour Trucking Association. Hello, Matt. Hello, Mike. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Um, I've got, just to clarify for our listeners as we get started, so the Harbour Trucking Association, and I quote from your website, is a drage-specific trade association which represents the interests of and provides services to intermodal and drage companies. Can you just give us a quick overview of the companies you represent, sort of services they're supplying in terms of how they fit into international supply chains? Absolutely. Uh, Our main focus at the Harbor Trucking Association is on our motor carrier members. Uh, We have members that own one, maybe two trucks, all the way up through the largest trucking companies in the entire country. Uh, So our focus is on drayage, right? The movement of containers. Now, while there is an intermodal component, when you bring in the rail, uh, our focus really is moving those containers off those marine docks down in our local ports here in LA Long Beach, where I'm located in the city of Long Beach as well as all the way down to San Diego, all the way up through the coast to Seattle, Tacoma. So we have those drayage motor carriers, which are our primary focus. And then on top of that, we have many vendors and suppliers that have joined our association as sponsors to help support the organization and some of the great things that we do for our motor carrier members. Obviously, there's an opportunity to interact and network with our motor carrier member uh, companies. But you know, for the vendors who participate, we have heavy-duty truck dealers, we have marine terminals, we have engine manufacturers, we have local truck dealerships, we have some uh, drug testing, drug and alcohol, DOT compliance testing companies, we have registration services companies. So everything that you would need essentially to make sure that your truck was running appropriately, chassis manufacturers, uh, no ocean carriers as of yet. I don't know if that's by design or not, but either way, uh, we we have every facet of supply chain really under the HTA umbrella and really cherish our members and the participation and volunteerism that they bring to the table. There's been a lot of talk about a freight recession in the US this year, particularly affecting trucking companies. How have your guys been getting on with business? We're seeing a slight uptick now. Of course, we're in Lunar New Year. So once we come out of it, we're anticipating an uptick in cargo volume, um, some diversion from the Red Sea crisis uh, and some from the Panama Canal. We have seen an uptick over the past few months, but I would say going back to November of 2022 through about you know Q4 of last year, uh, while there was still strong retail sales, et cetera, warehouses were still full of inventory. And now we're seeing those facilities burning off some of that inventory. So we're seeing those orders, like I mentioned, the diversion. But yeah, folks were struggling. There's been bankruptcies. There's been consolidations. Folks just straight up handing in the keys and 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 closing down their business. So it's been tough out there. 
rates have been pretty low. I don't know if uh, the shippers are looking for a pound of flesh from the drayage operators after the supply chain crisis or not, but I'll tell you, it's very aggressive out there is what I'm hearing from my members now, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully it's not a train coming right at us, but uh, either way, we're seeing some volume uptick and some shippers telling us that we're going to see uh, rerouting for transloading, especially because of those two things I mentioned previously. As you say, yeah, we've got the problems of the Red Sea. We've got low water on the Panama Canal. There's always there's also this, as we've heard on previous episodes of this podcast, we've got the threat of union action on the U.S. East Coast. Yeah. Some people are saying that this is a bit of a, a perfect storm for the U.S. West Coast in a good way. Uh, there's a right. lot more cargo heading your way, but it sounds like you you feel the same way. Are you confident that you will be able to, or your members will be able to benefit from this and that the port of LA and Long Beach in particular, and also the container the container terminals, that they have the processes, the capacity, and the labor in place to really make the best of what could be you know, a bonanza of cargo. We've got thousands of chassis ready to go, stacked up on top of each other, five high, because we've seen so much dip in volumes lately. Uh, terminal capacity, I think as long as they remain efficient and do have order enough labor, to service the gates and service the ship side, to get those boxes off dock, provide enough appointments for us to pick up that cargo. Um, and then the trucking side, you know, honestly, because of the consolidations, uh, because of some of the bankruptcies we've seen, there are over 23,000 individual vehicles that are registered to do business just at the ports of LA and Long Beach alone. Uh, in Oakland, there's another, you know, seven, 7,000. This uh, Seattle Tacoma around 5,400 or so. So while LA Long Beach is really the epicenter for the West Coast volumes as, as it's perceived in the outside world, it's looked at as one gateway. But we do have two different port operating authorities landlording all of those marine terminals. And some things that the ports have done is that they've taken land adjacent to the marine terminals off dock, but within the port uh, region or port territory, rather, port property. And have activated these lands, put investment into them with private partnerships in putting down gravel, leveling, so they can act as a container, you know, pressure release valve for some of these containers that might be dwelling on dock. Uh, strategies such as these dwell fees and whatnot have motivated shippers during the supply chain crisis. It was challenging because warehouses started to get kind of full and they just were not able to cycle through that inventory as consumer spending shifted more towards the services side. And that's where we saw that that dip. And so we're ready now. We're at vacancy rates above 5% in Los Angeles County for warehouses. Uh, during the supply chain crisis, it was less than 1%. So we've got some open space. As I said, inventories have burned off. So as long as we can get those boxes off dock in an efficient manner, um, we're not going to have a problem moving that cargo. Again, um, on previous episodes, we've heard that there's a container shortage issue over in Asia, or at least there was as we were running into the Lunar New Year. During the pandemic in LA Long Beach, there, there were issues around empty container returns, which had a, a major and detrimental impact on chassis supply. Can you explain what happened exactly then and how this affected supply chains and what needs to happen this time to prevent a repeat? Mike, you're speaking my language, right? This was one of our biggest issues that we had during the supply chain crisis, and you nailed it. It's a chassis utilization problem. If we're sitting on empty containers that are atop chassis that we cannot, the boxes that we can't return back into those marine terminals because ocean carriers have either shut off receiving, marine terminals have met their allotments with those particular vessel operator equipment providers, 
or they've essentially run out of space, right? We then become the storage depots and very difficult to build back those equipment providers or even chassis providers for storage costs. Uh, the chassis is not being used. If you're in the pool of pools and utilizing those chassis and can't find a place to return it, you're still being charged. So you need to fight back on that. Um, again, as I mentioned, those close off dock, near dock facilities that have helped with those container receivings will make a difference. It took a while for those to get fully operational. We were already in the storm by the time they really started finalizing these two different locations, a Pier S in the Port of Long Beach, and then the LAXT facility at the Port of Los Angeles. So those two facilities alone are going to have some ability to absorb some of that additional empties, uh, provided the equipment providers are going, willing to compensate somebody for bringing that empty container to that space. Of course, that also costs money, right? Nothing's free. It's much easier to force trucking companies to store their containers for them, uh, no charge, right, than, than to pay the drain movement or to pay for an off-dock storage facility. And granted, not every equipment provider is the same, you know, no two are alike, not one is the same. Uh, so we're hoping, because when we see those empty return restrictions, which we're still experiencing now, I mean, it's not, it was not unique to high volume times. If the terminal can't accept the container, we have to figure out something to do with it. You nailed it, man. They were parked on streets. They were packed in dirt lots. They were parked in neighborhoods because there's literally nowhere to put these. So hopefully we'll avoid that moving into this next surge. Okay, let's uh, pivot slightly. At LA and Long Beach, but you can maybe tell me if this is a problem elsewhere as well. One of the complaints from truckers has been the need to use a different appointment system for each of the container terminals. Uh, which obviously pushes up costs, lowers productivity. Uh, and, I, and in fact, uh, I think you've said previously, it, it pushed cargo away from the West Coast or away from California. Has this now been addressed by the terminal operators or the ports? So interestingly enough, you know, we, we wrote a letter and brought in our partners at the California Trucking Association to both port authorities a little over a year ago at this point in time. Um, asking them to engage in a process to be it an RFP process or some other official mechanism to encourage technology providers to come to the table with something that would be able to integrate the existing appointment systems into one single dashboard. And the terminal operators, you know, they spend a lot of money on their appointment systems. They want them to run, they want control over how they run those systems, how many appointments are being released. So it's, they're proprietary and, and they take pride in them. A, a single system would you not usurp their existing systems, but we would need that single portal, essentially. So the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach kind of took a little bit of separate tracks. Initially, we thought that there was going to be more coordination, but there was money that was voted by the LA Harbor Commissioners to be put forth developing something through the Port Optimizer Program in the Port of Los Angeles. I believe the allocation for the money, I believe it's around $6 million, is sitting on the mayor's desk at this point in time. And then on the Long Beach side, just yesterday, they voted to embark upon a pilot program that would actually utilize a single appointment system with a couple terminals in Long Beach. So we've got a couple terminals in Long Beach, none of them in LA so far. So it's a slow going. I don't know if it's politics or what exactly is the challenge here, but you know, ideally, we'll see some sort of solution. And that diversion that you spoke of is really relative to efficiency. If I'm having a hard time making appointments, getting appointments, uh, fulfilling my appointments for whatever reason, be it congestion at one terminal that forces me to miss my next appointment, 
Um, you know, if you look at the data still, we're talking 20% of turns are close to over two hours still today in the LA Long Beach port. So it's very possible that you could, you could miss slots elsewhere uh, just because you're stuck at this other terminal. So all those efficiency issues can pile on top of each other because they equal costs and shippers while freight will take the, you know, the path of least resistance, more or less, part of that impediment is, is cost. And if I'm a shipper and I'm looking to other port gateways, and again, the Panama Canal is a mixed bag. You do have cross rail, cross-country rail that's moving to the other side. So container traffic hasn't been as impacted as the tanker traffic has been because of those draft clearances. But nevertheless, they do have the ability on that Asia-Pacific trade to go through the Panama Canal. Houston, Savannah, Norfolk, Charleston, these places are investing in their ports as operating ports, marine terminal you know, operators as, as the state port authority in investing in transloading facilities and making the way even more attractive for shippers. So without a doubt, the, the more challenges we have with being efficient, the more challenges we're going to have with cost control. And at some point in time, the shipper is going to do the math and they might you know, divert stuff as we saw. Uh, during the ILWU uh, contract uncertainty. Um, some of that cargo has come back now, but some has not all of it, right? For sure, yeah. It uh, sounds like it's one step forward, two steps back on some of those issues. Your members are facing a number of restrictions on the um, green technology front, I, I guess we'd say. I mean, I should note that California has been leading the way for many people in the world in terms of its clean air efforts. But for you guys, this has been a headwind as well. So I want to explore a few of those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, the usage of diesel engines, if we start there. What's the current situation in terms of those regulations, um, including this new rule banning new diesel trucks from servicing the ports of LA and Long Beach, as I understand it? I, I think this is the, the California Air Resources Board's adoption of the Advanced Clean Fleet Regulation last year, which covers all of California's maritime gateways. It was due to enter force at the start of year. Is that right? And it's been a little controversial. That's correct. Uh, Our partners at the California Trucking Association actually sued the state of California over the advanced clean fleets rule implementation. Uh, The state of California, without getting too detailed into the processes under the Clean Air Act and how states can set their own emission standards, suffice it to say there's a process that exists for a state to obtain a waiver from the federal government in order to enforce new motor vehicle standards. During the development of the Advanced Clean Fleets Rule, ourselves, as well as many other organizations, had pressed the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, on whether or not they needed a waiver to enforce the Advanced Clean Fleets Rule. The message during the development of the rule, which spanned almost five years, was essentially they didn't need a waiver because the waiver that they received for the Advanced Clean Trucks Rule, which is a manufacturing and sales mandate, essentially, for heavy-duty truck sales in California, that that waiver would be sufficient coverage for them to be able to enforce ACF. After the lawsuit was issued, once the reg was finalized in November, or excuse me, in October, there was then a lawsuit filed by the California Trucking Association, as I mentioned. But one other thing that the California Resources Board did just about a month later is submitted a waiver to the federal government for enforcement of the ACF. Their assertion is, is that if they needed a waiver, that they wouldn't be able to enforce this rule until they got it. And so there's a question as to whether or not they need a waiver in the first place. And if they do, is the waiver that they submitted in November sufficient? So what they did basically in the you know 13th hour of this rule 
was on December 28th issued a stay of enforcement. So while on January 1st, 2024, there was a ban on internal combustion engines, whether it's diesel, propane, natural gas, what have you, from being entered into port service after that date. So they have stalled that. So now at this point in time, if someone wanted to enter in a diesel vehicle or natural gas vehicle into port service, they would have the ability to do so. Whereas previously, as of 1124, that that option was cut off for them. So while the lawsuit is still out there, there's no preliminary injunction on the rule. It is a stay of enforcement. And so we're waiting to see how this is going to shake out. I know that there, uh, the judge in his uh, findings regarding the California Trucking Association's lawsuit uh, had alluded to the fact that the two parties were negotiating. Uh, and, you know, in our conversations with both CTA and the ARB, um, there hopefully will be a pathway for a better rule construct on some level. It's been very controversial. You mentioned, you know, California is the bleeding edge of progressive politics in, in the world, really. And when it comes to air quality regulatory policy, they are looked at as the preeminent agency across the entire globe for protecting public health and now really moving into this next phase for the past, you know, 10, 15, almost 20 years of, uh, regarding greenhouse gases. And so we are the plane of the spear, unfortunately, in the heavy duty on-road trucking sector because we're very visible. The authority of the state is pretty clear on their ability to control the emissions from our vehicles. And they are no stranger to issuing regulatory and legislative policy to try to get us to turn over or to cleaner equipment, or at least incentivize us to that end. With some of these regulations, is it a case of like the car going before the horse or the regulations are going be going before it becomes real possible to actually turn the intentions into reality, if that makes any sense. And what I mean by that is, is it really possible for your members to buy electric trucks at a competitive price? Is the charging infrastructure in place? I mean, we throw in hydrogen as well as electric. I mean, it, what, when is this stuff there available for people to choose and to invest in it as opposed to going for the, the old routes and the old fuels? Mike, the problem is infrastructure. The truck really isn't the most difficult part. Yes, it's expensive, right? They're like half a million dollars for a battery electric platform. And depending on the OEM of the hydrogen, which re, hydrogen platform, which isn't fully commercialized yet, really, uh, it could be as high as three quarters of a million dollars. Cost is a challenge, but the operational side, as, where we're at now with charging speeds from the existing chargers, DC fast chargers that are out there, as well as overall range capability of the vehicles themselves, it's the operational side that can be a little disconcerting for fleet operators to jump right into this technology. So you can buy the truck, but if you don't have anywhere to fuel it, it, it becomes difficult to justify the purchase even with incentives. And I can tell you the TCO does not really work out for battery electric vehicles or at this point, hydrogen vehicles without incentives. It just it does not pencil out. So you have a tax rebate from the Infrastructure um, Investment Act. You have numerous grant programs that buy down the cost of the truck. There's money out there to help with charging infrastructure. But the rollout of the infrastructure is, is again, where the challenge is primarily because it takes a long time to build a new substation if necessary. It takes a couple of years, you know, 18 months to tear up a parking lot to put new conduit in and then build out charging pedestals. Also, the maintenance of those pedestals has become an issue these days. Uh, much more, um, I think, more attention to it that really when those chargers are down, nobody's charging anything. So you can, you know, where the what they say about, you know, the best intentions, 
But at the same time, there's these operational challenges that are, are very concerning for my members because if the truck's not working, they're not making money. It's costing them money. They're even, you know, it's costing them money when it takes them an hour or 45 minutes to charge a battery to get it up to a good state of charge if you're trying to do opportunity charging like within a shift. So these challenges, I think, are are clear. But the short answer is, yeah, you can go buy an electric truck right now. And it probably, depending on the OEM, probably doesn't take that long to deliver it, honestly, primarily because not many people are buying them. So they have a, a production window, again, depending on the OEM, which could be a matter of three to six months. But it doesn't take three to six months to put that infrastructure in place. So the cart before the horse is that you need the infrastructure to justify the truck purchase, but the infrastructure only gets built really if there's trucks that they know that they're going to in charge. So it becomes a catch-22, but incentive money helps, I'll tell you. But some of those operational concerns really can keep my, some of my members up at night. I mean, it's just the infrastructure is not there and, you know, the truck is... Again, I, I, while it's not the hardest part, the, there is there are challenges associated with it where we're at in the technology today. And did I read somewhere that in some cases that you're only getting range of 150 miles or so? Absolutely. And you can pile more batteries into a truck, but then that's going to decrease your overall payload capability. There was one truck, you know, an OEM, very ambitious, put out an over 700 kilowatt hour battery pack, which could get you probably 300 miles. I would think typically it's about two kilowatt hours per mile. So you can get there, but the truck on the curb weighed out at over 29,000 pounds, just the truck, a diesel truck day cab. The diesel day cab is going to weigh about 16,000 pounds on the curb. So you're talking a weight difference of 13,000 pounds. And most of that weight is batteries. But you need batteries to have that range. So when you're cranking and operating all day, even though there is some regenerative braking that, that takes place, so you're charging that battery in operation, 150 miles like is, is pretty much what the feedback that I'm getting from my members, that's what you can al almost count on. They say effective range, depending on the OEM, right? They're up to 250, 300 miles. Not really the case so far. So, you know, you're right. It, it really depends on the application, the OEM's total overall battery pack and uh, where you're able to charge it to really help kind of put some of those issues to bed. Well, what sort of uptake have you seen so far from your members in sort of electric trucks, for example, and, and how much interest is there in hydrogen trucks? My, my members were the first trucking companies to deploy battery electric vehicles in all of California into drainage service. Uh, this goes back to 2017 when they were already testing one manufacturer's equipment, and uh, they still have those trucks today. Uh, while it was a much different technology platform, they were already on that front edge. They saw the writing on the wall. There was a lot of promises made about efficiency of the vehicle. And if it's cheaper and more efficient for trucking companies to use a certain type of technology, I can tell you, they're going to use it. They don't need to be mandated to use that equipment. If they're seeing a ROI that makes sense, they're going to utilize it. So right now, we have a mixed bag, right? People are concerned about that range issue that we talked about. So that's having them lean more towards hydrogen. But the hydrogen fueling is just starting to get underway, really. Um, and hydrogen, if there's not enough tax credits associated with it, or if the provider isn't willing to you know, lessen the amount of, uh, of profit they're taking, it's still pretty darn expensive. So Ideally, time will move on. Plus, you got to be taking consideration the color of the hydrogen, right? 
that's a big issue where we're not wanting to create hydrogen, which takes a lot of energy to make using coal or other fossil fuel power to create this hydrogen. You know, that's what they call black hydrogen. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the gold hydrogen, which is actually naturally occurring and, and harvested that way. So it's a, it's a spectrum without a doubt, but the cost, the greener it is, right? We'll see how much the, this cost is. So battery electric, because you can get the trucks today, utilities have been pretty aggressive about coming forth with programs that they will pay for all the construction leading up to your meter or up to the charger. There's just some hesitancy out there. Time, cost, whether or not these trucks are going to be you know, operationally sound. And it's a large investment up front, even when you're taking that incentive money. So yes, people are adopting them. I think there's over 215 zero emission vehicles in service right now in LA Long Beach. That number has been creeping up. Um, but that's juxtaposed against the incentive programs where you could get up to $400,000, maybe over $400,000 when you start stacking some of these grant programs on top of them, so, on each other. And uh, people are just not taking them. So this is a challenge, obviously. I, I'm, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, that we're, you know, the costs, again, without incentives, it's just, it, it is very difficult to pencil out. Very difficult. So you've got the financial incentives, but the, these trucks still aren't, they're still not leaving these sales courts. Is there something more that maybe the state or federal government can do in terms of policy? Or or maybe there's more that OEMs or shippers or other stakeholders can do to encourage this transition and help your members get there in the end? A lot of companies have their ESG goals. They look to trucking to help, you know, to control those scope three emissions. I think when we talk about incentive programs, especially that the state of California is running, they, they pioneered many of these scrap and replace type programs for heavy duty equipment, that when you put constraints on the money insofar as, you know, focusing only on a certain fleet segment, you, you limit the amount of participation. Right now, they are limiting the largest of the large fleets by requiring outright purchase of 30 vehicles in order to qualify for a discount and incentive. And the largest of the large trucking companies out there are the best ones to incentivize in this transition because they have the deeper pockets to absorb some of those operational challenges, right? That equaled costs at the end of the day. They can absorb that. And they're gonna run the trucks, hopefully develop a better product through its usage with the OEMs, and then turn that truck into the secondary marketplace. That's where small fleets are going to purchase these electric trucks for the most part. That's what they do now. It's on the secondary market. So there's that concept of not limiting, but rather maybe encouraging those larger fleets to use those trucks, then turn them back in. The largest of the large fleets are the ones who are out there doing a lot of this. Schneider, for instance, um, has, I think, 92 trucks. And they basically have a situation where you have a truck charged so a driver will do his work in the intermodal rail yards, come to the facility, drop off the container, swap out that truck for a new truck that's fully charged and then go on. So you're telling me that that right there is you need two trucks to do the job of one diesel truck, right? This all has costs associated with it, no matter what. So for shippers, when we go and talk about ESG goals and we talk about those scope three emissions, yes, they would love to have their stuff moved by electric trucks, but they aren't necessarily willing to pay more for the service that they're getting for those electric vehicles. And so there has to be a, a frank and honest conversation about that initial capital outlay 
and then supporting that trucking company in that transition. So that's where shippers can come in. The federal government, you know, they could get rid of the federal excise tax, which is 12% on class eight vehicles, which just ups the cost. They could look at increasing the overall total weight that's uh, cleared on interstate highways. Right now, the max weight for a battery electric vehicle is 82,000 pounds gross combined weighting. So they could up those weight ratings. Um, they could empower states, ideally, with some type of motivation to help utilities bring projects online faster or more subsidies for renewable and biofuels. I mean, in California, unfortunately, we are just hell-bent for leather on zero emissions where those drop-in renewable fuels or hybrids are part of the regulatory compliance conversation. And so there's, you know, there's things defense could do nationally to really encourage a quicker, more accelerated decarbonization strategy because California's went straight to zero emissions and it's going to end up in court. And so that's just delaying whatever potential reductions they might be able to get. When today there's technologies utilizing renewable natural gas, renewable, fully renewable diesel. These are pathways that are going to reduce emissions, but they've been, I guess, put off to the side for the sake of moving to zero emissions. Matra, CEO of the Harbour Trucking Association. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.